Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn to Jonah. We're going to be in the third chapter as we continue our series looking at this small prophetic book, which has been so good for us. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to do this uh, this summer. As we've been in our first three weeks of this study of the book of Jonah, we've learned some important things about that. You remember the first week we talked about as we read the prophet uh, that God gives us a call in our lives. And you ought to be able to say these with me probably by now, but God gives you a vocational call. Jonah had one of those. Uh, he was a, a prophet. God gives you a general call, and that's the, to speak the word. The, the, the Great Commission get, tells us that we're to go and preach the gospel into all the world, and he certainly had that. And, and then sometimes God gives us those specific calls in our lives where he nudges us into a ministry or a need that we see. And he says, I, I, I'm equipping you and sending you to go and do this. And we saw that Jonah didn't do that. And that led us to our second week where we found Jonah in a storm. And you remember we talked about there are kind of two storms that happen in your life. There are those storms that are common to all of us. And those are just the storms of life. And we compared and contrasted the storm that Jonah found himself in which was really a storm of chastisement in his life, of discipline, because he was outside of God's will with the storm the disciples found themselves in in the New Testament where God was building their faith and revealing more about himself to the disciples. And then last week we looked at what it meant to be in repentance with the Lord. And we saw last week, if you remember, that there is uh, this idea that God is always near to us. When we're ready to repent, God is always near. He's always ready to receive us back. And, and we set our hope only in God because we have no other hope. And then when we humble ourselves, God is willing to forgive us of our sins. You remember we talked about this at length that that when we're prideful and we don't agree with God about what sin is, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, this week we find ourselves in Jonah chapter three and we're just going to see the message and the result of the message which God gave him. And so I want you to read with me. It sounds kind of uh, daunting to say we're going to read chapter three, but it's not that many verses, uh, 10 verses here today. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. And everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent and he may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. I think one of the great things about what we see in Jonah's life is that at every stage, in every one of the chapters, there's something for all of us in the room. 
There's something for you if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. There's something for you today if you feel like you're far from the Lord. There's something for you today if you feel like you've never come into a relationship with the Lord. There's something for all of us. And the first thing that we see in chapter three, really it starts off right in verse one and it's that failure isn't the end. Failure isn't the end. When, when we read Jonah's life, really, Jonah's kind of a pitiful figure, isn't he? Because he's called by God to go do something. He runs the opposite direction from that place where God has called him to. And then we see Jonah uh, not repenting on a ship while they're in a storm and he's thrown overboard and he's swallowed by a great fish. And you kind of think, well, is that the end? And it's not the end. Failure isn't the end. In fact, many commentaries devote an entire chapter just to verse one of chapter three because that's such a refreshing thing for all of us to be reminded of is that our failures ultimately don't have to define who we are. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Aren't you glad that your most recent failure isn't the defining thing of the rest of your life? I'm certainly glad for that. I'm, I'm glad that we serve a God who once we fail doesn't say, mm, you're done and set us aside because if he did, who could he ever use, right? Because all we are, if, we, if we're really being honest, all of us are excluded by failure, right? I mean, none of us have been perfect. And, and when you think about it, if God was finished with us when we fail, he'd have no one. There would be no one. And so failure isn't the end. And the whole of scripture really teaches us that. Not just Jonah's life, but the whole of scripture. If you think about it, one of the amazing things about our scripture, the Holy Bible, is that it is so transparent. It never hides the failure of the people that it writes about. In fact, it highlights their failures more often than not. And doesn't make you feel kind of good to go like, I mean, I'm kind of not that far from that guy. I'm not that far from that lady. I mean, I can relate to that. I've felt that way in my life. I've done that in my life. The scripture teaches us through failures that God still uses people. If you think about it, we could just use David, King David as an illustration. I've been reading in, in Samuel for my daily devotionals here for a while and you think about David's family. I mean, David's called a man after God's own heart. But let me describe some of the things that happened in David's life, if, if you're not familiar. I mean, in David's life, David had three wives. That was a problem. Man after God's own heart. David had sexual sin within his own family. Man after God's own heart. David wasn't perfect. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And I don't know if you've, you've ever caught this. Uh, when, when, you, when you read the story in Samuel, it, you probably have read this part maybe. You remember that when David had the adulterous affair with Bathsheba, he decided to have her husband killed when he couldn't trick him into going home and being with his wife. You remember that part, right? So, so it said that, that David told his commander, when the fighting is fierce, pull back from Uriah, her husband. He'll be killed. It'll be great. That's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to cover this up. Did you realize it wasn't just Uriah that died? It was multiple people. It said others died with him because it wasn't just Uriah. They pulled back and several were killed. I mean, David was not just kind of a, a guy with some little flaws, some character issues, he had massive issues, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. Go to the New Testament for a minute. Have you thought about how often Jesus was exasperated with the disciples? I'm going to sit here, and we're going to have a banquet together, guys, and I'm going to tell you about the covenant of my blood, and I'm going to talk about what's coming, and good old Peter, what does he say? 
Everybody else around here may deny you, but me, I'm gonna be with you till the death. I'm your guy. I got you. That didn't even last the night. He, he didn't even make it the night. Jesus takes them to the garden and he wants them to watch and pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep. I mean, they, they can't be relied upon for anything. There's this one time Jesus is telling them about his impending death and they're all arguing about who's the most important. He's just told them, I've got to go and suffer. I'm going to die. And they're worried about a popularity contest. He's exasperated with them all the time. And yet the church was built out of the lives of the disciples, imperfect people. If God needed perfect people, only Jesus could be used. Because Jesus was the only person who's ever been perfect because he was fully God and fully man. Read your scripture and, and notice this little nuance that the biblical writers give us. When they refer to Mary and Joseph, have you ever noticed this? They say, Mary his mother and Joseph. Why don't they say Mary his mother and Joseph his father? Because Joseph wasn't his father. He'd been born of the spirit and of his mother Mary. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she conceived as a virgin. Fully God, fully man, perfect life. And I know sometimes we just feel like we don't measure up. And you remember last week we talked about that when Satan comes to attack us and say, you, you, you're just not worthy, you, you're not good enough. The answer is you are right. But I serve a risen savior and he saved me. And he is worthy. He's worthy of all our praise, worthy of all those things because we never measure up. And so I know this morning that maybe you're in here and you feel like, man, if you looked at my life, uh, you know, I maybe I haven't killed somebody like David did, but I mean, my marriage wasn't great. I wrecked a business. I, 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 I was fired from a job. I didn't raise my children maybe in the best way. I have a broken relationship with them. I, I wish things could have been. I, I just feel disqualified to ever serve the Lord. And I just want to remind you, failure is not when God's done with us. He, he's not done with us because we serve a God of second, third, and thousandth chances. We see it in Jonah's life. In fact, I think it's kind of sad that the the main thing everybody takes away from the prophet Jonah is that he was swallowed by a whale. Not the point of the book at all. An interesting thing to be certain, if it was a whale, a fish, whatever, you know I mean? It, it just says a, a great fish. Not really the point, is it? If you could describe the point of this book, and we're gonna see it in just a second, we've just seen it in Jonah's life, we're gonna see it a little further. The, the, the point of the book is really mercy. It's God's mercy for us. It's not that he was swallowed by a great fish and vomited back up on the land. I mean, that is cool, it's awesome. And I know that's kind of as we're growing up, that's what you, you take away from that, but that's not the point. It's a detail. But the point is God's mercy and God's mercy was on display to Jonah. And we actually see it in the message that God gave Jonah. Would you look at verses two, three, and four with me again? Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now that's good. That's a start in the right direction, isn't it? Because he messed that up the first time and now he's going and listen to what it says. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk and Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed in 40 days, Nineveh will be 
demolished. Now in chapter one, Jonah was told to go and cry out against the city because the wickedness and evil of this city had come to the Lord's attention. You remember we said that you're, you're never fooling anybody, right? You, you, you can't ever fool the Lord. Now you can fool yourself, you can fool a friend, you can fool your family, but God sees it all. And God saw the great wickedness that was in this city. And so God sent a prophet with a message. And when you see the message, it's a little bit clearer for us in chapter three. In chapter one, it's go cry out against the city. In chapter three, we see it was a pretty simple message, wasn't it? In verse four, it says, he proclaimed in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, Something's about to happen. The, the word there's actually overthrown. And, and I, I was watching a movie this past week and it, it was such a like typical Hollywood thing. And you know how this happens. Like somebody's angry and they kind of storm in a room and they're looking around and what are they looking for? A table to throw. I, have you ever done that? I feel like I just need to try that sometime, you know, because it happens in all the movies. I've never been in a room where somebody picked up a table and just tossed it, you know? Maybe you have, maybe that happens at your house all the time. If you do, you might want to see Pastor Kirk and get some of that counseling we've been talking about, you know? I mean, it'd be good for you. But, but if you think about it, if you had a table in your home that, that maybe you had set for dinner and you had the good china on it and all those kinds of things and it had candles and maybe a centerpiece and, and the, the glasses were out and the, the butter and the food and, and the bread, it's all out on the table and you walked in and this idea of overthrowing, you, you, you got low and you lifted and you tossed it what would happen to the contents of that? I mean, you, you know, we never think about that in the movies, right? On the other side of that, you'd have broken china, you'd have food embedded in the carpet, right? It would be a mess. Everything would be broken. The table might not survive being overthrown. And that's exactly the picture that, that, that is used here when it says this is going to be demolished. In other words, there's gonna be nothing left. I'm going to take God as saying, the very things that you've built your life upon, the very things that you value, like that china that might be in the house or, or the good choice food that you've made, and, and all of those things are going to be tossed. They're going to be shattered, demolished, broken. There will be nothing left. And as Jonah does this, imagine this for a minute. He does it for three days, walking across the city. Large city, because it's a pretty short message. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Next spot. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Next neighborhood. 40 days. I, you know, he's like on repeat, right? And it's interesting because I often think about this in, in Jonah's life for us is that, you know, Jonah had some cultural obstacles to overcome. It's a city that he's not from. There might have been a language barrier. I, I guess somehow he figured it out. Maybe he had a translator. Maybe he was fluent in both. But he's not Assyrian. He's Hebrew. And he's the only one. Do you ever feel that way? Can you imagine if, if God's message to you was go to Nashville, Tennessee walk around it and tell them in 40 days, this place will be demolished. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? Like, I'm the only one at my school. I'm the only one at my work. I'm the only one in my friend group. I'm the only one in my family who is a believer. 
And, and, and it feels a little daunting. And, and I was just reminded this week that that's exactly how our namesake for our church must have felt in 1811 when he boarded a ship to go to Burma with his new wife. It's an interesting way that Adoniram Judson asked for his wife's hand in marriage. You, you remember, right? He writes a letter and says, let me have your daughter's hand in marriage, but only if you're okay with never seeing her again because we're gonna go over here and die. That's a proposal nobody will forget. And Anne's parents said, go for it. And he was right. Anne never returned from the mission field. She died there. Can you imagine the first Christian missionaries to show up there in 1811? Here we are, and we've got to assimilate to a culture. We've got to do these kinds of things. And, and, and I think sometimes we just feel like we're the only one, the only one who can do this, the only one who's, who's left to do this. And it feels a little bit overwhelming. But if I was to ask you, have you ever felt like the only one? It's kind of a trick question because I would remind you of something that our Lord and Savior said to us in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 and 20 when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. I'm with you always. You're not alone. We're not sent out into the world to deliver the message on our own. We're sent with the, the very presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit invading our life and and being filled. Now, now I, I know what we like to do. A lot of times we love to claim the name of Jesus and his presence over all manner of things. You've probably done this. I've, I've done it. Uh, have you ever tried to claim the name of Jesus? Be with us on our vacation, Lord. Okay. I'm sure that he is. Lord, now you know my team is playing this Saturday. The Vols need a little help this year. Be with them, Lord. But Jesus didn't say anything about your vacations and he really didn't say anything about your, your, your recreational activities. He did say that we could be assured of his presence when we were doing what? Engaging in the mission. I wonder if that's why we oftentimes don't feel like we really sense the presence of the Lord. It's because we're off doing our own thing, not really engaged in what he called us to do. You wanna feel the presence of the Lord? Get engaged in the mission. You wanna know the presence of the Lord? Get serious about it. I was reading this week a, a book on the prophet Jeremiah and, and in it the author said something that, that just really struck me and, it, and I thought it fit perfectly with what we were talking about this week when he said we cannot be whole human beings if we cut ourselves off from the environment which God created and in which he is working. People of faith live in far larger reality than people without faith because of one thing. God so loved the world. We sang it. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And as we're reading that, I wonder what difference it would make in your life if you lived with that kind of in the front of your brain instead of buried somewhere in the back or, or only when we sing about it or if you come to church or if you have to be working in Awana this fall and you're working with the kids who are memorizing the Bible verses, what difference would it make if when you went out to walk in your neighborhood, God so loved the world was on the front of your brain? Maybe it would cause you to pray for those houses you walk by 
and ask God to help you engage those neighbors. What would it do if you went to work tomorrow and you didn't just see people as coworkers, but you saw them as people who either were in the family or outside of the family? They're either saved or lost. Would it change how you maybe engage them? Maybe you would want to take one of this. Let's go to lunch. I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story because when I hear your story, then I'll be able to share the story of how God changed my life. God so loved the world is the, the largest reality that we're living in. It, it makes a difference for us. And as Jonah's walking around, this is front and center in the message. God is about to demolish this place. It's a message of judgment. And I want you to see this because judgment looks like something uh, kind of crazy uh, when we talk about this. When we talk about verse four and that, that overthrow, oftentimes we divorce God's mercy and his judgment. But this is God's mercy on display. If God wasn't merciful, he'd never tell you judgment was coming. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't tell us that we were under his wrath. It's only because of his mercy towards us and his love for us, his compassion for us, that he tells us this. It's because judgment is real. Now, we often think about the love of God, and we should, and, and I hope you're amazed by the love of God like I am this morning. But the love of God is made manifest to us in Christ dying on the cross in our place because God so loved the world. Well, why did he have to do that? Because we were under his wrath. We had judgment that was waiting for us. This is incredible when we see this, as Jonah's proclaiming this and, and saying this to them, the people of Nineveh do something amazing in verse five. It just simply says, then the people of Nineveh believed God. That's a plot twist for you, isn't it? God says, go and cry out against them, I'm gonna wipe them out. What we expect out of this is those people in Nineveh to go, get out of here, Jonah. I don't have time for this. We project that on people, don't we? We do the same thing. Oh, they don't want to hear about this. They're not interested in the things of God. You know, they go to a, a different church, a different religion. But how can they call on him in whom they have not heard? For us, when we say that God so loved the world, it's not just something to know, it leads to action. And the action oftentimes leads to a result. Now I want you to see the result here because this is incredible. They understood that judgment was coming and they grasped it because nothing was hidden. Remember, nothing was hidden. And they have this, this moment of recognition that what had become, come before God was now coming, coming out. Now, now we say it like this in the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's judgment and mercy in the same verse. They're never divorced from one another. They're always there. They're, they're always there competing with one another, in tension with one another because God is holy. He is just. His righteousness has been offended by our sin. And yet in his mercy, he has loved us and sent Christ to die in our place. And I love that it just simply says, then the people believed God. 
they didn't just believe Jonah, they believed God. And, and their belief in God did something. It changed something for them. Because when they believed God, they proclaimed a fast, they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So when we say that they believed God, it led something in their lives to change. And, and maybe the question that I would have for you this morning is, do you believe God? Because God has said that he is the creator of life. God has said he created you on purpose to be in relationship with him. God has said your sin has separated you from him and the only way back is through a relationship with his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in your place. No other way. Have you believed God? Look at what this response did. Uh, last week we focused on repentance, but we get a pretty good picture here of what they did. It, it said that they proclaimed a fast dressed in sackcloth, but look at verse six. This started with the people and it went higher up, right? I often think that we have this wrong in our country. We're always mad at the politicians and never looking at ourselves. Maybe we should act right. Maybe we should act like the people of God. Maybe we should be repentant. And it starts something because look what happens. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issues a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God and each turn from his evil way and from his wrongdoing. Now, last week as we talked about repentance, we, we talked about how we get there, but this is the result of repentance and it shows you a couple of things that are pretty important. One is that there was an outward repentance. Did you notice what happened with the king? It said that he got up, and he did something. He took off his royal robe and he put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was something that was often made from uh, goat's hair. So very uncomfortable, not something that you, you would want to wear. And, and it showed something about the state of mind that you were in. That's what ashes did too. Uh, it's different than, you know, in the scripture, it says oftentimes to get up, wash your face, anoint yourself with oil. What does that mean? I mean, you, you know, it's kind of like put on your smell good stuff, you know? Uh, don't, be, don't be funky when you walk into the place. Be right, take a bath. Yeah, like you would go to work. You would get dressed and you would go through your morning routine doing all of that kind of stuff. This is different. They had done that. He removes the royal robes and he puts on in humility. We talked about that last week. This outward sign that something was different in his life. That's the sackcloth and ashes. But then there was something inward going on in his life because as we talk about fasting, we talk about there's something inward in our lives when we're fasting. Why do we fast? Fasting is, is the withholding of food or types of food or drink uh, or types of, uh, of beverages or it's the the, the withholding of, of something that we want to do. You know, you might say like, I need to fast from my phone for this week because I don't need to be consuming that. I wanna be consumed with the Lord. You can do that, but, but when we talk about the biblical fast, it's an appetite and you're denying an appetite, something that you need for something that's more important. You need food. 
But in this instance, what difference did food make? It wouldn't make any difference. If God's going to overthrow us anyway, filet doesn't matter this afternoon. Right? It, it doesn't matter. So what does he do? Outwardly, he's identifying in humility. Inwardly, his appetites are showing that there's a change. And notice what he tells the people to do. When you cover everybody with this sackcloth, he says, everyone must call out earnestly to God to seek the Lord. We know from the New Testament that Jesus said, when you seek, you will find. What does he mean? If I seek treasure, I'm gonna be able to find a treasure. If I seek a power, I'll be able, no. He says, when you seek me, right? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. When you earnestly seek those things, you find them. And so he says, everyone must earnestly call out to God and each must turn from his evil ways and his wrongdoings. Now, now this is a great picture of what repentance is because it signifies the turn, the change of thinking, the change of direction that we often talk about in repentance. Move away from wrongdoing and move towards righteousness. Well, God saw their actions and he responded. He responded in an amazing way. In verse 10, it says, God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways and so relented from the disaster he had threatened with them and he did not do it. Now, there's something about this that I think is pretty important. A lot of times when we talk about repentance, people will tell us, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart. That's a portion of it because Jesus does need to be the Lord of your life. But did you notice there was action here? What was the action? They were turning away from evil and moving towards God. I know that this is what I have thought is right. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna do what you say. There's that agreement there, that fellowship. We, we say it in, in Romans 10, 9, and, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we often just run right past that idea of him being Lord. But if he is Lord, that means that he's the boss. I know that's hard for us to kind of figure out in an American system because you know we've never called anybody Lord. There's never been like a Lord of the manor. But for us, if Jesus is our Lord, it's not just some kind of mental kind of agreement that there is a God and Jesus is his son. That doesn't get it, folks. The demons understand that. They tremble at that. But for us to be saved, we believe God. Belief leads to action. One of my favorite, favorite stories, when I was a kid growing up, was probably because it had a song with it. Zacchaeus. I won't sing it for you and make you struggle uh, with that, uh, but Zacchaeus was this wee little man. Wee little man was he. So what did he do? He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. When along came Jesus and said, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house today, right? It's a great story. Zacchaeus has been a thief. He's a tax collector. And, and the, the, the response of repentance in his life 
wasn't that he just said, you know what, Jesus, you're a pretty cool guy. I believe you are. Yes, I believe you are God's son. That is, that is fascinating. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having lunch today. This is good. What did Zacchaeus do? He stopped being a thief and he became a giver. What, what did he do? I'm going to give back X number of times what I have stolen from people. I don't want to defraud anybody anymore. He changed. He, he was not a thief anymore. He was a giver. There was something in his life that had changed who he was. It, it wasn't just a mental thing of like, oh, I, I believe God. No, his life changed because belief led to action. It's interesting that the scripture doesn't just stop here mentioning Nineveh. There's actually another prophet uh, that is associated with the city of Nineveh. And for five extra points, if you can name him, we'll sign your bulletin after church or something. You know, It's Nahum. What do we learn about Nineveh? They believed God and God relented. But later they presumed upon his grace and went back to their evil ways, abandoning the worship of the Lord. And by 625 BC, Nineveh is no more. Gone. Over. It's an important lesson for us as believers to never presume upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as if it doesn't matter how we live or what we do, as if it's inconsequential how we treat people, as if it's inconsequential and, and how we live morally and ethically. Of course, there's a reason that God has given us grace and it covers all our sins, but to presume upon that grace as if it doesn't matter how we live is crazy. God will not stand for it. But it's also a reminder for us as we think about God's judgment, for those of you who are not in Christ today, that it is real. You might say, are, are you trying to scare me? No, not at all. I'm not trying to scare you into a relationship with Jesus, but I do wanna lay out the facts. Those who do not know Christ Jesus will be separated from God in eternity forever. Not my words, the scriptures. But I believe it. I believe that there's one way for us to be saved. And it's through a relationship with Jesus Christ that God the, the Father provided for us. Philippians chapter two says some incredible things about who Jesus was, how he left his station in heaven and took on the form of a man humbling himself even to the indignity of death on a cross so that the wrath of God would be satisfied. Some people today say that they don't want to follow a God who would practice child sacrifice. What kind of God would kill his own son? They know nothing of God. If Jesus doesn't die, you can't live. Why? Because God required payment for sin. The payment for sin was blood and the perfect blood of the Savior shed for us at Calvary covers us. 
shields us from judgment. I want to ask you this morning, if you would bow your heads. In a moment, we're going to enter into a time of response and sing a song of invitation. And I just want to say to you this morning that if you've never given your life to Christ, our prayer, my prayer for you, it's been very specific this week, is that you would believe God. Not believe Jeff, believe God. Believe that Jesus is the son of God. Believe that he died on the cross in your place and that today you would be saved. I was so struck by that. Just reading that this week, it was probably in my third reading of the chapter. The sermon was done and it just jumped off the page. They believed God. Would you believe him today? Trust him. Turn away from your evil and your wrongdoing and earnestly seek the Lord because he is merciful and he has loved us with an everlasting love. For those of you who are believers in the room, would you please put John 3.16 on the front of your brain this week? Would you let it influence everything that you do? Would you live that full life of faith this week? knowing that you're never alone if God's called you to a hard place to share the gospel because Jesus goes with you. Trust that he is working and be faithful to tell men and women and boys and girls that there's a God in heaven who has loved them with an everlasting love and sent his son to die in their place. Our Father, as we enter into this time of response and invitation our prayer is that you would move in the lives of men and women, boys and girls in this room, and that they would be someone saved today, Lord, if they don't know you. And that for those of us as believers, we'd never presume upon your grace, but Father, we'd be faithful to walk in your ways. And maybe for that person this morning that just has felt like a failure, that today, Father, you would reinvigorate their faith as they repent and find wholeness in you. God, we ask you to work in our midst today as we seek you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.